You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I signal. Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey with Jason and Amanda. Sorry guys, she's still chasing kids. It's one of those things that we just do a lot of these days and... Well, sometimes, sometimes she just has to have the hard job and I get the easy one. So I'd sit here and talk to people and she's out chasing kids and, and dealing with a whole bunch of insanity in the other room. So you may or may not hear some of that insanity today, but it comes across the microphone when it does. And they tell me I'm not supposed to just duct tape the mouths closed. So, so I don't. And uh, (laughs) you guys will hear a little bit of, of my world sometimes. Uh, but today I brought a uh, brought somebody in here to talk with us. I, Hannah Spanky, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. So normally I, I talk to people who are who, who are you know former foster uh, kids, maybe a foster parent or caseworkers. Um, we've talked to um, attorneys who work with kids. Guardian items is the word I was looking for there. Um, mm-hmm. We talked to all kinds of people about the the uh, foster and adoptive system. And today, Hannah, you don't have any experience in that world, do you? I do not. Lots of adult connections and stories of their past, but we'll get into that of how that came about. None personally for me. Yeah, but here's what I know. I know that kids who are in the foster system are at risk are at risk for about everything. And one of the things that they are highly at risk for is human trafficking or sex trafficking. I, I don't know that there's that much of a difference in those in those worlds right now because that seems to be something that's just huge across the board. I have a good friend of mine who who has a story where his wife and daughter were had somebody attempt to abduct them uh, one day and and he's pretty certain it was exactly that same sort of a story. And so it runs across the board, whether you're you know a kid in foster care, or, or, you know, a kid who's been adopted, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, all the different reasons. But as a foster kid, you are highly, highly likely to have experienced some level of that somewhere in your life. And I hate to have to say that. It, it makes me a little bit insane, but I know it's real. And mm-hmm. Hannah, you have a lot of experience in that world. And you've met some I kids who've, who've been, you know, who got to adulthood after having gone through that. And so why don't you tell us just a little bit about how you became so experienced and knowledgeable in this particular topic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is unfortunate that it has to be said. And it's, it's, it's really something that I'm glad you said the words human trafficking, sex trafficking, because there's so much like fantasization and like glorified um, perspective about sex work when it's, framed as something that the woman or the girl is choosing to do. But really, in my experience, after eight years in that industry myself, there is absolutely no difference. 
whether you believe at the time that it's your choice, all of this nonsense about women's empowerment, etc., or it's something that you're truly forced into, the experience is very much the same. And the impact it leaves on you is very much the same when it comes to the trauma and the um, negative associations and the dissociation and the substance abuses and all of the stuff that comes along with it. So for me personally, um, I was not raised in a foster home or a foster household, but I was raised in what you would call a broken household, maybe divorce household. Um, my parents separated when I was five years old and um, my mom left the house. I was raised from that point on till my mid teens alone by my dad. And um, I have a younger sister as well, but just him in the picture. And my mom was struggling with a severe drug addiction from that age on until very, very recently, actually. So shout out to her for cleaning her act up. Finally, that's, that's fantastic. But it really left an imprint on me that I didn't understand at all until I started doing my own healing work a handful of years ago. So when I got to the teen years, um, as you may have lots of experience with, I hit a rebellion phase and I started <laughs> going crazy, buck wild. Everything my dad did was wrong to me. Everything that, I, that he was trying to do was wrong, wrong, wrong. I hated it. And it was just this like, you know, fight to the finish, bulls against bulls kind of thing, like pushback nonstop. And so um, when I was about 14, 13 or 14, there was a little bit of physical abuse in that household as well, not sexual, but physical. Um, I elected to go live with my mom, who at the time was still struggling very much with the, with the drug addiction, very, very low income, very pot, impoverished type of lifestyle. And I chose it as a young teen because it, in my opinion at the time, I thought that it was like my ticket to freedom. I was able to get out of the rule of my father, you know, and I, I could go and, and basically do whatever I want. And in that environment, I started to witness some of that, some of that sex work type of stuff, that industry. And I didn't really know it at the time, but I did, but I didn't, it wasn't explicit, but there would be times when I would need money for something. My mom did not have the money and she'd say, okay, I'll, I'll go get it. And she would leave. I'll see so-and-so and then come back and she had money. And so I, I wasn't stupid. You know, I put two and two together that, that that was a thing that was going on in whatever form it was. I knew there was something like that going on. And so I learned very quickly through that, uh, as well as just the society that we grow up in, that as a female, as a, a girl, a woman, I was able to, not just able, but even promoted to commoditize myself. It was an outlet. The door was open. And so at 16... I sought that out on my own, actually. I made a Craigslist ad of all crazy things. And I had my first encounter with somebody. I ended up having sex with this man, stranger, met him online, didn't know anything about him. It was within a couple hours of making this post in the middle of the night at 16 years old, had sex with him for money. And it was so that I could have enough money to go on my graduation trip for high school to Disneyland. I graduated high school a couple years early. And so I was very, very young, 16, freshly 16. And at the time, I didn't know how much of a negative impact that had because with all of the trauma, with all of the stuff from childhood, all of the poverty that I was living in at the time, all of this struggle that I had no idea how to process at that time, on one hand, I was like, wow, did I just figure something out? Like, I have this money now. Like, this just came out of thin air, basically. But on the other hand, I was having nightmares. I was so full of anxiety in my body. There was this like PTSD sort of sort of impact on me that I did not understand at the time and didn't for many years. And so 
I want to really highlight that because that alone is one of the things that, that whether a woman is forced into it or chooses into it in that, in that type of industry, it becomes the like hook line sinker that keeps her there. She is very quickly dependent on these men on this industry to keep going so that she has an outlet for the income, believing that she can't make it other ways. When there's such a self-worth wound, like that's where I was at. I, I didn't believe that I could make it other ways, using my mind, using my other talents and abilities. You know, I saw myself as an object, just like these men were seeing me. And so that continued on all the way until my mid-20s, um, through all various routes of it. The strip club for many years, escorting prostitution. I did porn for a five or six days in Vegas, very quick turnaround. I decided that's not for me. Um, but nonetheless, it was a part of the journey. And it was a really, really rough climb out because I had created such a dependency on these men. My entire identity and self-worth was wrapped up in somebody else's approval of me. And I really think that so much of that stemmed from not having my mom in the picture and my dad in his defense all parents i believe are doing the best they can with what they have at the time with what they know you know and so it's not about placing blame but but the trauma that i was going through in his household along with missing that, that nurturing part from the mother side of things that really creates a foundation for self-worth i believe that that is what created the the belief system in my mind that that had me thinking it was a good idea to start in the first place yeah it sounds to me like it's entirely possible that if the right person would have made the right call you you very well could have had a a, a foster care story in this because growing yeah. up, you know my wife was is a child of growing up with a mother who's who's in some pretty heavy addiction stuff Mm-hmm. And so I, I know a lot of those stories secondhand through her, and I know just how traumatic that can be. And it, it really yeah. changes the way that you see yourself. And And I probably have about a half a million different stories about, you know, conversations we've had over the years. I mean, we've, we've been together, what's, 23-ish years? I, I don't know, that we've been together. Um, it's a good thing she's not here. She might slap me for thinking <laughs> that hard. <laughs> but I'm getting old. It's not my fault. These kids are killing my brain. <laughs> but you know, I learned that that you know how so much of of how she saw herself and what her self value was was based in in those early childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In in a lot of my healing since then, it's been um, a mixture of like unlearning, getting all of the stuff that was all the unhelpful limiting beliefs, the the disempowered stuff that was living inside of me, like getting it out, unlearning a lot of that, but also matched with the same amount of learning and education about why things play out the way they do and and how how to face it and all of that. And so in that, what I've learned, a big part of my education in the last five years has been about development in children. And mom and dad play very different roles in in how that plays out. In the most basic terms, mom really plays the role of self. We see her as self. You know, we live inside of her um, as long as is assuming it's a biological mother. But regardless, we see mother, the mother figure as an extension of self 
And so she really creates the foundation for self-worth, self-trust, self-abandonment, if that's a thing, if it, or if it's not, self-responsibility, all of that. And then father, he represents receiving love from someone that is unfamiliar to us for the very first time. Mom, we know mom. Dad, we don't. For like, you know, our first breath on, on earth side, we get put on mom's chest. It's like, oh, I know her. I'm familiar. I know what this is. This is mom, my home. This is me. We get handed to dad. And that's our very first experience of love from someone that is not us. And so then he creates the foundation for how we learn to relate to others. And so with my mom really abandoning herself through the addictions and then abandoning the household, quite literally, I learned really, really quickly and deeply that I could do the same thing and I should do the same thing and I deserve to do the same thing. And so I gave myself away left and right in that industry in exchange for something else, in exchange for something that made me feel good, whether it was money or somebody's validation, it didn't make a difference. I was, I didn't have that foundation built because of her absence and her impact. And then on my dad's side of things, he really turned into like a serial dater after the divorce and would make some, some absurd comments you could say about, about women, about like, Oh, they always want too much. They always need too much. And so it created this idea in my head that I didn't deserve the attention I was getting from men. And so I was willing to give more than I actually wanted to in order to get that attention. And so those two combined, it was like the perfect recipe for me to, to fall into that industry and have a really hard time getting out. You know, you, you used the key word there that, you know, my wife, Amanda and I have talked about a lot and that's what you deserve. Right. And that's, yeah. that's such a part of that identity that is, if you if you didn't struggle with that as a kid, you you don't understand it, you know. It, and it takes it's taken probably hours of conversation as we've talked about it. And you know, I I don't know exactly what that what that does psychologically speaking, but I know what it looks like. Mm-hmm. I know the damage that that causes, and and so I you know I guess. The one question that I, I I tend to ask a lot is about that you know that mother wound and that father wound that that a lot of people experience through that you know has that been something that you've been able to to come to a healthy place with in your adulthood? Yes, absolutely. So um, my father was very emotionally unavailable, and so he was always physically present. He provided for the household. He you know, there's food on the table, roof over our heads kind of thing. But when it came to the emotional needs, that really wasn't met. And so then I played that pattern out in my relationships, because that was what I was comfortable and familiar with. I would find men that were emotionally unavailable, but they were there, they were there for me, quote, unquote, you know, there for me, but not there for me on every level until I woke up to that pattern. And I could see it for what it is. And I was like, Oh, shit, I need to, I need to change some things inside of myself, because that's what I keep saying yes to why am I saying yes to that and so then I was able to kind of to start doing all of the digging deep into where did I learn these things where did this come from and um, really starting to repair those relationships and and truly becoming my own inner parent like a reparenting process for that little girl that still lives inside of me we all have one you know little girl little boy that inner child would never never goes away and so much of our dysfunction in relationships as adults is coming from all of those needs that weren't met as a kid. The little girl or little boy wants our partner to be the one to meet them. And then all kinds of chaos happens, you know? And so learning how to reparent yourself and really giving yourself 
the love and the nurturing and the acceptance and the unconditional stuff that you needed is, has been such a big part of my process. Oh, I can only imagine. And, and I know the verbiage well enough to, to when I hear you say that I'm like, yep, yep. Somebody's done some therapy work. Uh (laughs) Yeah. I've been, I've been in that office, you know? Um, But yeah, I, I understand. I understand what you're talking about there. And um, I guess the big question that the the reason I really wanted to talk with you about this is, you know, not that we need all the all the details of how horrible life was when you were young or the things that you went through, but but so many kids who walk through a similar journey, especially kids who come through the foster system, and not always are out of it yet because you know there's there's plenty of teens in the foster system, and um, but how to walk out of that and find a healthy a healthy life worth living so how did you how did you number one realize like this this isn't who i want to live my life as this is not a forever plan for me and and number two what did that that journey look like stepping out of it how did you come out of that yeah so um it was very much a breakdown before the breakthrough kind of a thing as so much of our major life-changing things are you know it really has to fall apart before it can come back together in a better way and for me that was throughout my my whole entire escorting years which was the last the last handful of years of my time in that industry i was seeing clients outside of the strip club for money and and that was how i was making all of my money paying all of my bills but i was also in standard traditional romantic relationships in my own life on like serious relationships for years on end committed relationships. And so you can imagine how difficult that was to navigate with a partner that of course, no one ever wants you to do that, you know? And so it was always this, this, so now what I do in my work with my clients as a coach and, and, and my own therapy with them, it's like, I say this all the time, our partners, and you can speak to this, I'm sure with a wife of many years, is our greatest mirror. They are going to reflect back to us ourselves, the parts of ourselves that we like, the parts of ourselves that we don't like, constantly, constantly, constantly. And I see that as a gift now because it gives us an opportunity to grow in certain ways we can't on our own. But at the time, what was constantly being reflected back to me in my last long-term relationship before I left the industry, which was three years long, was that I wasn't good enough. He constantly was reflecting back to me that he didn't approve of me. He didn't approve of what I was doing. It wasn't good enough. And I finally woke up to the reality that I was a match for that at the time, because on the deepest level, I didn't feel good enough. And once I really felt that for the first time, actually there was a single moment that triggered it for me. This, this opened the door for all of it. We were on the phone. I had been doing all kinds of fitness work and stuff for the first time ever. And I, and I lost like 10 pounds or something. And I'm not, I'm not a very big person. So that makes a big difference, you know? And he had something to tell me. And he was like very reluctant to tell me. And I was like, just what is it? Spit it out. He told me in one way or another that he had lost a sexual attraction to me and was not like happy with that part of our relationship because I was too skinny. I was unattractive to him and it, I was on a walk at the time. So I was out in public. I got home about 10 minutes into that conversation and 
it all hit me unexpectedly like a ton of bricks. I completely broke down. I started crying, crying, crying uncontrollably. And that turned into literally like a four day long emotional just release purging, just crying, crying, crying. And that was the first time I had the self-awareness that so much of my self-worth and how much like value I felt I had was tied up in my body and how others saw my body because of all of those years in the sex industry. If somebody liked the way I looked, that meant I was good enough for them. When my partner, the person that I was the closest to that I loved the most told me that I, he didn't say these words, but told me basically that I wasn't good enough because of the way I looked. It was the first time I really felt how like intertwined my identity was with my physical, my sexuality and my, my image, you know? And so that really opened my eyes to like, wow, where is my self-worth coming from if it's not coming from that? And I realized how much of it I didn't have and how much of it, like how truly unworthy I felt and how, how far I had to go to start really building that and working through that. And then that was where all of the childhood work started to come up of really starting to think, where did this come from? Like this didn't come out of nowhere. Where did this, where did these seeds get planted? And then I, I went up from there. So you you said a handful of things there that, that make me want to jump to different topics, but not good enough. Uh, this yep. is a story, you know, and I mention this all the time. And I'm in a dad's group online. Um, it's got several hundred members in there. And I talk to grown men a lot of times, and they talk about the same struggle of not feeling like they're good enough. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I always want to dive off into like, not good enough for what, you know, I'm not good enough to be in the NBA or the NFL or the NBA <laughs> or the NHL. Like I, I, uh-huh. there's a lot of things I'm not good enough for. Let's, let's, let's break that down a bit. But when you get to the, to that core feeling of being not good enough, period. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you overcome that? By slowly, but surely it was like a real, blood, sweat, and tears, uphill climb type of thing for a number of years, slowly but surely realizing that as an adult, even though I was quite literally abandoned as a kid, like as a kid, you are dependent on someone else, you know, somebody can leave you and you are abandoned. As an adult, I finally realized that nobody can abandon me other than me. And that's all I've been doing for the last almost decade, abandoning my myself, my own desires for all of these men that are paying my bills, abandoning myself in relationships that are constantly reflecting back to me that I'm not worthy of, of their love. You know, I was abandoning myself left and right. And I realized that I have to take responsibility for that. It's not like, I think there's a really fine line between like victim blaming, like, Oh, you shouldn't be with that guy. He's beating you. That's your fault. Cause that's not true. That's there's a lot of manipulation, a lot of emotional stuff. Like, you know, victim blaming is real and that's not what I intend to do at all. But on the other side of that fine line is, a reality that's been true for me, that personal responsibility will set you free. You know, it's it's the doorway to you being able to do anything about anything. Because as long as there's a finger pointing out, like as long as it was my boyfriend's fault, as long as it was my sugar daddy's fault, as long as it was my parents' fault, I was powerless. And so it was about me claiming my power back and saying, you know what, I'm willing to be responsible for how I feel. I'm willing to handle this in a way that only I can. I'm going to start 
treating myself better. I'm going to start eating better. I'm going to stop drinking. I, I was a major alcoholic for a decade, for 10 years, to the point where at the end of it, it was like a, a 12 pack at lunch by myself at my house type of drinking. I stopped completely. And that was another three, four day long emotional, just like ah, purge because I had been repressing so much. So I started to peel away the pieces of my life that were coming from wanting to numb out, started to stop those things and doing the hard actions that really do honor yourself. Like that allowed me to honor myself versus the dishonoring that I was doing all the time. So practicing those habits, practicing new beliefs, um, a lot of that as well as releasing the emotions that I had never felt for the first 20 plus years of my life, feeling them fully and allowing myself to feel them and validating myself. These are real feelings. These are, these are yours. They're yours to feel. And it um, doesn't mean you're bad. doesn't mean you're broken, but like until you get them out of your body, they're going to be there. They're going to be impacting you. And so it was a matter of releasing and relearning how to tend to myself. You know, the other thing that, that I heard, and, and I think you, you kind of touched on a little bit there, is, you know, there's two words that get tied together all the time. One is guilt, one is shame. And mm-hmm. I, think, I think guilt has its place. Like, if you do something wrong, you've done something wrong. What you did was wrong. Shame, however, creeps in and says, oh, you did something wrong. That means you are wrong. So how did you deal with that as you walked out of this life, out of this, you know, the industry, out of the addictions? Because, you know, number one, you know, uh, congratulations for, for having stepped past that because it's been, what, just over six years uh, since my last drink. I've been down mm-hmm. that road, too. I was I was a pro for a while. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, yeah, like walking through the shame of that. I mean, today's culture would would throw all kinds of extra shame at you for that. I know that just because that's where we are. So how did you walk out of that shame? Yeah, um, air high five to you for that uh, sobriety as well. I know it's really, really hard. And when you do and you're on the other side of it, it's something you can really be proud of. So congrats to us. (laughs) Um, But I saw a meme on Instagram earlier, actually, and it feels like that's the answer to this question. It was something ridiculous, kind of a picture. It was like a cat wearing a cowboy hat on a horseback or something like that. And it said, as soon as I ruined my reputation, that's when everyone started loving me. And it, it was like, isn't, isn't that so true? Like, as soon as I started to own my own decisions and I wasn't willing to make myself wrong for them, it takes that permission away from everybody else, too. You know, it's like the movie eight mile with Eminem. Like it's like the scene where they're there. He's in the rap battle. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but like they're in a rap battle and he just rips on himself. He like destroys himself. He's the one doing it to himself. And then it's the guy's turn and he has nothing to say because what's he going to say? You know, there's nothing left to say. And so it's like by me being willing to look at all of my darkest pieces and accept them, bring them into the light and say, you know what, even if that wasn't awesome, it's still okay. This was a part of my journey. This was part of what shaped me into who I will be later. And I'm willing to accept that. Nobody else can, can shame you if you aren't willing to take that on. And so that was my main transformation there is really like owning everything and just claiming it radically. 
So who told you that you had to you had to figure out how to own all of your dark pieces? Um, I don't know if it was ever a moment, if it was ever something that someone like said to me, but it was definitely something that I think I had kind of always naturally done a little bit with just this like, kind of like rebel spirit. Like, oh, if you told me I can't do that or I, you know, I'm going to do it. And just kind of like wanting to push past the social norm, the social narrative. I think that was finally a positive in my life <laughs> when it came time to healing. Because I was willing to say like, I'm not willing to be this like beating myself up for being an alcoholic for the rest of my life. What's that going to get me? That's just going to get me feeling more down on me. And that's like such a disservice to myself. And so I think it just really came from that place of personal responsibility again of like, what am I willing to do for me that's going to change things? Because I don't care what anyone else is thinking about me. If 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 I love me, that's what I'm going to feel. If I don't love me, I'm going to feel all of the judgment. And so, yeah, it was just a major awareness around like what internal state was I creating? Are you familiar with Jordan Peterson? I am. My sister is a major advocate. Like she went to like one of his live shows recently. <laughs> I wish I could have gone to his, to the live show he had when he came here to St. Louis, but I I had other things I couldn't couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. But it, a lot of what you're saying reminds me of of what he talks about, and it's it's about accepting the fact that that we all have that monster inside of us somewhere. We all have yeah. the propensity to do evil, and mm-hmm. and the power comes when you you can accept that, and then choose not to shame and blame everybody else for the problems in your life, but to, to voluntarily accept the responsibility for fixing problems in your world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, yeah. that's so countercultural. Totally. Totally. Because when, when you do that, it's like nothing else has major control over you. And so much of our society is built on other things, having control over us, you know, whether it's the news outlets or the medical system or like whatever, there's things that we have to like, like what's the word submit to in certain ways. And I think that's really deeply internalized a lot of the time. And then it turns into a major negative thing. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, for, for a while here, I, I was rocking a mohawk on top of my head, which as a 45 year old man with <laughs> hair, that's, that's not what most people would culturally accept, right? But uh-huh. I had a good reason to have that mohawk, right? I, my little guy was going into kindergarten um, about a year and a half ago. And when he was going like a few weeks before school, he said, Dad, I want a mohawk. And I said, okay, because my older kids have taught me, don't fight about hair. It's a stupid fight. You'll lose. They'll mm-hmm. make your life difficult. So I said, okay. And I cut a mohawk into his head. So let's go. And the week before school started, he came to me and said, Dad, I want you to cut 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 my hair off. I said, Why? What's what's wrong? He said, Well, Dad, I'm afraid that that nobody else has a mohawk and I you know, nobody else has one. And, and I'm afraid that they're they're gonna think it's stupid and they're not gonna like it, Dad. And 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 I just I don't I don't want to be the only person I know with a mohawk because I'll feel I might be embarrassed in school and this, that. And he had this whole thing, and I'm making the words a little bit more grown up than what he made them, but that's what he was telling me. I said, You're right. No, but I, I don't think I know anybody other than you that has a mohawk. You're right. I said, come on, let's go to the bathroom. We go to the bathroom. I got out the clippers and I fired him up and I cut a mohawk into my head. And I said, 
Now you know somebody else, dude. And <laughs> it, like it was cool. We were good, right? And and so I, I rocked this weird hairdo on top of my head for you know a middle aged man with a mohawk. Well, why not, right? I, I don't at this point I don't care a whole lot about this. And I went mm-hmm. to work, and I one of the guys I worked with um, is uh, he is an old school guy and very crotchety and very open about his thoughts. He'll give them to you whether you wanted to hear them or not. And he and he said something to me one day. He's basically trying as a grown ass man to to like make fun of me for my hairdo. Which and I finally looked at him, and this is the moment that I realized the truth of this. I said, "All right, dude, I have a wife. I have nine kids." I'm done impressing women in my life. I can't afford to impress another woman in my life. (laughs) If I impressed any woman too much, I I can't afford the child support. I'm not willing, right? And and I'm certainly not trying to impress you, dude. Why do I give a crap what you think? Like, I'm doing this for a good reason. And if you don't like it, okay, cool. Like, you don't have to like me. But it was such a freeing moment to be able to look at somebody and, and say out loud, like, I'm not trying to impress you anymore. I'm, I'm just doing this thing because, for a different reason. You know, I, I did it for my kid and I wore it for a year and a half and I've just kind of started to let it grow out partly because I'm lazy and it's too much work to keep it up. But, <laughs> but uh-huh. you know, I just, I, I don't really care because I know what's important in my life now. That is so awesome. That is so, so, so awesome. And as the oldest child, I can definitely concur. It's not worth fighting over hair. (laughs) (laughs) That was a whole part of my rebellion as well. So, yeah. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to tell you by the time my older boys got to high school, I mean, I was doing some of the weirdest things you've ever seen to to teenage boys' heads with hair because they like, I want this. And can you you shave the underneath here and then shave this side? And I want this side long. And then I want to bleach it and dye it green. All right, it cost me 30 minutes to create a hairdo that I don't understand, right? I I don't really care. You're going to wear it, not me. And uh-huh. you know, Walmart hair dye is cheap. And right. thankfully, it goes away fairly quick because it did look pretty strange. But he yeah. thought it was cool as could be. And, and I learned they taught me don't don't fight over hair. It's, it's a stupid fight. <laughs> yeah, totally. I In my um, jump to my mom's in that early teen years, I was so excited. You can see here in my hair, like this is my natural hair color. I've been growing it out for um, a year or something. And this, this end, this bleached blonde is what I've been since I was like 12 or 13 years old. Because when I moved to my mom's, that was something I always wanted to do. My dad always said no. And um, I did it because I had the freedom then. He for years would like bribe me, offer to pay, pay me and pay for the service to go get it dyed back to my natural hair color. And just the, the, the notion that he didn't accept it, even though it was what I wanted, what made me happy in that moment and didn't matter, you know, in the grand scheme of things, like I was just even more willing to not do it like the way he wanted me to do it. And so, yeah, there was, there was absolutely a learning lesson in that for him. I hope. <laughs> yeah. Because at some point you get to be like me and you start to think, oh, maybe I do need to die this. I'm starting to get a lot of gray pop up in different places. <laughs> Those are your lessons. Every one of them is a wisdom. (laughs) If that's the case, they should all be white by now. Nine kids. (laughs) They've taught me a lot. (laughs) That's funny. But but yeah, Um, and it's one place where a parent can accidentally tell a kid, you're not good enough. Right. Yeah. And I'm glad you just said that because I was just going to ask if it's okay if I speak to that a little bit, circling back to the not good enough thing. 
about the deserving thing because I do have a lot of awareness about that now of like the why and the how. And I would love to to talk on that for, for a minute. Um, yeah. Yeah. So part of my most recent training professionally has been in somatic attachment therapy. I work with adults. I don't work with kids now, but um, a lot of the understanding about how adults relate to each other and have attachments to each other, whether they're secure, insecure, anxious, avoidant, all those different words, they all come from a foundation that's built in childhood, you know, like we're talking about. And so the difference, the major difference between attachments between two adults that choose to be together and attachments between a child and their caregiver is that as adults, it's a two-way street. You are both each other's attachment figure. You're both expected to give and take and take care and do for and all of that. As a child in the most secure, assuming it's secure, in the most secure upbringing, it is a purely one-way street where the child is not an attachment figure for the parent. The parent is the attachment figure for the child, meaning they get done for and there's nothing that they're expected to do in return to earn that, to deserve that, etc. And so I think so much of this comes from like just the, the, the like collective trauma around money and scarcity and finances and all that kind of stuff. It's like, you don't just, I paid for everything in this household. I'll take it away. You don't deserve the stuff that I bought you last night because your attitude right now, you know, and those kinds of comments, it plants this seed that I have to earn what I'm being given when really I'm the kid and I'm supposed to be cared for unconditionally, I have to earn that somehow. And that is the trauma, in my opinion. That's where the trauma is created in one way or another, because it's supposed to be a one-way street. And if it's implied at all that the kid can do good or do bad and they don't deserve care at the same level, then it creates this distortion that then you grow up being really, really anxious in your relationships because you think they're going to leave or really, really avoidant because you don't feel safe giving yourself, like sharing yourself more because what if they leave? It's this thing that like you, you aren't deserving of unconditional love and it plays out for the rest of your life until it's really dealt with. You know, that's, I think, part of the root of that not good enough thing, right? Mm -hmm. Because even if you grew up in a, in a reasonably normal in air quotes normal home you know you still probably dealt with some of that because yeah i'm just gonna guess i'm gonna say the percentage of parents who were on some level still broken humans it's probably pretty close to 100 percent. uh-huh totally <laughs> and, and when you yeah. take kids who've who've come from a broken experience you know whether it's you know foster care or just having been adopted even at birth because and a lot of people don't understand this, but being adopted, you, you, even at birth, you still had that trauma of the mm -hmm. loss of first family. Mm -hmm. And that happens at, at a young age and you might not have conscious memory of it, but you, you know, the, there's a book out there I'm trying to remember the author's name, but it's called the body keeps the score. And yeah. Yep. Yes. Your, your body remembers that stuff. Yeah. And it's amazing how it shows up in your life later. Yeah. Yeah. And that was actually one of the first books that I read when I really started my, my healing process after the, the sex work and all of that chapter, I wanted to close it for good. That was one of the first books that was recommended to me by a friend and I read it and it was the thing that started me on the path of, of all of the somatic healing, just really getting the stuff out of my body 
because I finally learned and, and knew and understood that 10% of it is in my memories. The rest of it is living in my body as like a cellular memory. And I needed to enter like the, get the energy imprint out in one way or another, whether that was screaming or hitting or kicking or whatever, all the fight, flight, freeze response needed to get out of my nervous system so that I had the space in my body to replace it with the beliefs and the thoughts and the impressions about myself that were going to be helpful instead of the stuff that was there from childhood. Yeah. And you know, because well, all the kids that are in my house at this point um, are, are kids who came to us through the foster system who are either currently fostered children or, you know, they've been adopted into our family. And, you know, my 15 year old daughter who is, who is like, she's not your standard, your typical 15 year old girl. She's, she's seen some things and then she's been, th and she came to our house at a very young age. Um, I, I don't honestly know if she has any, any real memory. Cause I mean, that first, first day was actually pretty hilarious. Like we went to McDonald's when we left the children's division office and then she ran around the McDonald's and my wife chased her. And I, I, I sat there and laughed for the most part because it was hilarious to watch. But mm -hmm. you know, we, we had a conversation recently where, you know, she's, she's a 15 year old girl. So she's dealing with high school girl stuff, right? Yeah. And as she's dealing with that, like some of these questions, I, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand 15 year old girls. When I was in high school, I still don't necessarily understand them now, but I understand the <laughs> human psychology to try and, and, feed that that need for some of that stuff and and rewrite some of those programs that are, that are in in her head and mm -hmm. quite frankly in other other kid we have said that that you know for whatever reason you feel like you're not good enough and to to sit down and explain to her like you know you're never going to be good enough for anybody else because they're not good enough for themselves and they're sure sure aren't going to let you have that position and and feel like you're better than them so that you're going to always fight with some of the stuff with people and you know okay. just to have that conversation with a with a 15 year old girl it's amazing that, that she's gotten to the point in her life where she can have that conversation you know like i said she's wise beyond her years i've i've met a lot of kids at this point and and she's definitely doing better than most but it's something mm. that every child needs and you know and any foster and adoptive parents out there i think this is one of those things that we need to be working so hard at teaching these kids that they are worthy yeah something you come into this life with you're going to leave this life with it they're going to go through a bunch of stuff that's going to make you try to believe it's not true but it is and so it's just a matter of like remembering 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 again and again and again that it's this whatever you believe in spiritually, faith-wise, religion, it doesn't matter. It's this like God-given right. You are worthy. Nobody is more worthy than you. Nobody's less worthy than you. And it just is. And um, through all of our human experience that would try to convince us that's not true, it is. And just remembering that and really believing it at the core of you, I think, is the only way to have have a happy life, truly, because then nothing outside of you can try can 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 tell you otherwise yeah and it's it's interesting that you mentioned the spirituality side of that because i grew up at, with a um a group i try to be kind here um who basically their their fundamental core beliefs that that i heard I, i'm not going to say this is what they were trying to do but what i heard as a kid was that you're not good enough you're not you'll uh -huh. be and and you you're just 
you, you're pretty much just always going to struggle with the fact that you're going to burn in hell forever. And right. as a young kid, that that wasn't very healthy for me to take in that message. And I lived that for a number of years. And then I walked away from it when I was old enough to, to leave my parents' house and said, yeah, I don't have to, you know, the only time I went to church after that was during basic training because, because they gave you an hour break on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> For an hour, nobody messed with you. And if you, uh -huh. yeah, I went to the Catholic service, and I had a friend who who was a. Uh, I went to the Christian service. He he was a Catholic, so we he would come to church with me, and I'd go to church with him, and we got two hours of a break on Sunday. But other than that, I walked away from all of it because all those people were crazy. And as a forty-five-year-old man, I can tell you, over the last five or six years, I've been on my own journey, walking back into a faith, and I think that's a lot of where where I began to build an identity that doesn't involve me not being good enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a healthy place that we can all end up, you know, and, and you don't have to, you don't have to be inside of a group that, that where the people there tell you that you're enough. Cause that, that was the right. real ticket there is you had to, you had to be good enough for them to think you're good. Enough, and you're never going to get there. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I like, so many of my clients that have come to me with with the most so I'm a, I'm a board certified clinical sexologist as part of what I do and so I help people heal from sexual traumas and abuses and dysfunctions and that kind of stuff and um, so many of my clients that have had the most amount of sexual trauma even if they didn't experience like abuse from someone else but just this deep 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 internalized shame that like they're dirty they're bad they're there's something wrong with them came from super religious households because it just teaches that like there's at least some part of you that's not good enough that's not acceptable that needs to be more pure that needs to be more right and it's just so detrimental um for me personally i was raised i make a joke i say i was raised in like a heathen household i had no law and order there was no religion my dad's belief was like no spirituality at all my dad's belief was like you're alive and then you're gonna die that's it like, that's the moral of the story. And so, like, that's what I grew up thinking and saying. And I was the most proud atheist in the world. And, like, you couldn't tell me otherwise at, like, 15, 16. And then I had my first major loss. My, I lost my grandpa when I was 19. And then that really opened some doors for me. And then um, I had what I call my actual, like, spiritual awakening a couple years later. Another major, major loss. The biggest loss I've been through in my life so far. And it was... The kind of thing that like shatters you into a million pieces that like there's no way around it that once you get put back together, you're going to be different, you know, and so it it really opened the door for spirituality because I felt so desperate with both of those losses that like they, this can't be it like the, this can't be it. There has to be more. There has to be something. We are energy, you know, in this physical body. There's an essence to all of us, a life force essence. Like, where does it go? I don't know. You don't know. We don't know. We don't need to know the answers, though. I don't think it's just a matter of like knowing that that's where our innate worthiness comes from. And it can't be taken away from us. This is an experience that we're living. It's not the the capital T truth. You know, like the truth is that you are worthy because you're worthy because you're worthy, period. And anything that tells you otherwise, I think, is is a is a left turn away from from the way that spirituality was really designed to benefit us. Yes, because we are all spiritual beings, whether we want to admit it or not. We're physical too. Yep. 
And, but yep. there, there's more parts of that. And, and honestly, you know, when, you know, my wife and I, anybody who's been listening for any length of time knows the story, but, um, back it's been what seven years now um a little over seven years ago we buried our oldest daughter after a a nasty bout with a really nasty disease and you know quite frankly i think that is you mentioned the part about you know once you get put back together you'll never be the same you know yeah yeah and quite frankly i think sometimes you don't want to be the same And, and that's that's been part of part of my own experience walking back to this because i grew up as as a young guy say you know, 12, 13 year old boy where, you know, the hormone level is at like 180% of what would be healthy for any animal. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and I was, I was raised up being told basically, if you look at a woman and have any sort of a sexual thought, you're going to go burn in hell. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I don't know if that's exactly what they meant to teach, but I'll tell you, that's what I heard them say. That's, that's what I took in. And and that made all that so difficult and so shame-filled and so hard. And it wasn't until I, I got to the point of being completely broken that I was willing to go ahead and step back in and step into a spiritual journey and realize that, man, this this really isn't all there is. Mm-hmm. It can't be. It it doesn't, you know, the guy I used to listen to quite a bit, um, he's, he's gone now, but um, Ravi Zacharias, and he talked about the the question of origins and and how that's that's a part of every human's existence is figuring that out and then transcendence like mm-hmm. I'm, I, I was born into this world and where did this all come from and i had this experience and what does this mean where where does it go it, and those are the hard questions that i think oftentimes kids who are in the middle of their own trauma don't have time to process that or think about that yeah and it's not until you you get to that place where you're you're on the other side of the trauma that you begin to to feel healthy enough safe enough to begin to look into those journeys yeah yeah like i can attest to that for sure in my childhood like just my dad wasn't ever going to say like you're not allowed to cry like it wasn't a, a verbal statement but it was implied in the way that we handled things. And like, I was very emotionally repressed in myself. I didn't, my mom left at five. I didn't cry, truly cry about that experience until I was 20 years old. Like it was 15 years of not feeling it, you know? And that was just one of the experiences of childhood that I didn't feel. And so like, once I started to tap into those things and really start to feel what I had been through, I was like, I was, it was illuminated to me that like, There is no one truth here. What my dad said isn't the truth. What my mom did is not the truth. What my teacher said in school is not the truth. What the church that so-and-so went to is not the truth. And it's like, that's why I'm such an advocate of spirituality now in whatever way it presents itself in your life and in my life and in their life. Like it's such an individual journey because like you said, this is our experience and no one else can experience it to the depth that we are in every single moment, like in yourself. It's an individual thing. We're all connected. I believe that, but we're also all on our own journey. And the way that we can find our own truth is, is unique and it's beautiful, whatever it is. And I think it just really is important that it, it is your truth and not something that someone else is telling you or having you believe or whatever, you know, like mine is all over the map. Like I have all kinds of stuff going on. I'm outside talking to the water and like praying to fire. And I have a, 
the last couple years of study with like Tibetan Buddhism and Tantra and all these different spiritual aspects that no one is better than the other. It just all, it, it's just all supported me in knowing that like fundamentally I am worthy as a, as a being and this human experience doesn't change that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's quite the journey you've been on. And I think, so many of us have been on our own journeys and, and helping people to, to walk that journey and come to a place where we do eventually find, find some truth that's worth building a life on is, is fundamentally important. And, um, mm-hmm. finding, finding that truth is, is I think part of where we're designed to go. Totally. I agree. Well, Hannah, I want to thank you for your time today and, uh, and, and sharing your story because, your story is is a story of someone who who went through a lot of the trauma that a lot of people have gone through and you're willing to share not only the trauma of your story but your walk out of it and hopefully to inspire some others to know that they're not the only ones who have been through these hard places and there is a road out yeah absolutely and thank you for having me i'm really grateful to have the platform to be able to talk about this absolutely Okay, Foster Care Nation, thank you for listening to Hannah's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have a Patreon account where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash foster care nation. The links to everything are in the show notes in your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled oh, Studios. Studios.